Words like violence break the silence, come crashing in into my little world, painful to me, pierce right through me. Can't you understand, oh my little girl, all I ever wanted, all I ever needed is here in my arms. Words are very unnecessary, they can only do harm. Vows are spoken to be broken, feelings are intense, words are trivial. Pleasures remain, so does the pain. Words are meaningless and forgettable. These are the words of the synth-pop band Depeche Mode, circa 1990, when your parents were your age. But even three decades later, the song could be an anthem for our romantic age. Truth is a feeling. Even pain that leaves an indelible mark is more reliable than vows or promises and words and the words that constitute them. Our only hope is to fulfil desire through physical intimacy. We are somewhat ironically verbally informed. For you see, ours is an age of bad faith. The persistent failure of modern Western culture to deliver much promised benefits of rational propositions of words has turned scepticism into suspicion. Failed institutions and fallen heroes have left the Western mindset obsessed with power or the perceived lack of it. How can we have faith in words in such an era of bad faith? Well, this morning we have the opportunity to reflect on the words of Solomon in the Proverbs. So you may want to have our first Bible reading open in front of you. I'll be using the translation of the Hebrew scholar Robert Alter simply because I think he brings out more of the drama of the words that are there, but I will pay attention to uh, the words we have in our first reading. This morning and next week, we'll take the opportunity to reflect on the Proverbs of Solomon and find a way back towards faith in words. But before we do that, uh, let's pray. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and the breath of your spirit that makes it powerful in our hearts. Lord, incline our hearts to hear your word today. Amen. Amen. Well, the Proverbs are from a time of good faith. As pithy and applicable as the various Proverbs appear, it's not a straightforward procedure to put them in some kind of biblical context. And as you'd all agree, sensitivity to the larger context is essential when understanding parts of the Bible. Now, thankfully, there are hints here and there that assist us in locating these general observations in the flow of the Old Testament story and therefore in relation to the Lord Jesus. The most important of these markers are the ones that associate the various Proverbs with the story of Solomon, Israel's wisest king. And so in Proverbs 10 verse 1 we read the Proverbs of Solomon and really the next 10 chapters uh, of uh, the book of Proverbs could be attributed to him. This description appears twice in the book along with various other authors but unlike those others who are mentioned, Solomon was a king in Israel when Israel was at its height. 
The land was like the Garden of Eden. The people were at rest. The incredible Exodus journey had finally ended as God moved into the temple to dwell with Israel and to be their God. It was a time of good faith in Israel. On the face of it, Solomon is a king in Israel at a time when all the promises of Abraham seem to have been fulfilled. Solomon has a great name in a great land and there is a great people and Solomon is a blessing to all the nations. But even more than that, Solomon's reign is potentially history-changing. Let me read to you from the, a small event in the beginning of Solomon's reign, recorded in 1 Kings chapter 3. This is how Solomon began the task of being God's king over God's people in God's place. 1 Kings 3. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Now, did you notice what Solomon asked for there? He asked God for the knowledge of good and evil. The very thing that Adam failed to do in the Garden of Eden. From Genesis 3, the man and the woman listened to the serpent instead of God and took for themselves the knowledge of good and evil. They defied the Lord's words and ignored his warning following their envious design. So when Solomon becomes king and starts his reign by asking God for the knowledge of good and evil, the scene is set for something extraordinary to happen. Across the larger story arc, it seems that at last things have turned out for the best. The wait is over and all the hope of the world with God and humanity could be fulfilled. Solomon becomes the poster boy, not just of wisdom and Israelite kingship. More importantly, he is potentially the one who overcomes the curse on humanity, the one who will crush the serpent's head, the one who will, under God, rule the world as Adam and Eve should have. From this perspective, we begin to understand something of the theological significance of Proverbs. They're much more than just canny observations about the world. They are an aspect by which human beings rule their world by creating meaning within it. The wisdom of Proverbs enables Israelites to exercise something of the mandate that God gave humanity in the Garden of Eden when he created them in his image. But that was then. And this is now. How shall we find our way towards such proverbial optimism when it comes to the battle between words and feelings? In our era of bad faith, I think, we feel the power of foolish words and their poison. The tsunami of words that wash over us every minute of every day trains us to filter out much and attend to specific voices 
We love them and we hate them as they needle our weakness and flatter our fears. But Proverbs saw us coming. A soft answer turns back wrath, but hurtful words stir anger. That's Proverbs 15 verse 1. And in verse 4, healing speech is a tree of life, but perverse speech breaks the spirit. Now when we lay them out like this, the value of wise words over foolish ones seems obvious. Yet so often that's not our experience, is it? The passing of time and the poison of fear, guilt or shame means that some foolish words seem to have an irresistible power, a command we must obey. These words pierce us with barbs that leave us feeling belittled and bereft of faith and future. We see ourselves in these words as weak and naive or false and foreign. Their voices leave stains on our hearts such that we can only see ourselves as unwanted, unlovely, impure, imposters. Foolish words leave scars that become calluses of bitterness and resentment, envy or self-loathing. Or as Solomon said, a glad heart will brighten the face, but by the heart's pain, the spirit is lamed. The tragedy of the situation is that in our misery, instead of turning away from these foolish voices towards wisdom, having turned inward, we seek different forms of foolishness, the voice of false comforters. Some voices we love and we long for as they veil our greed and pamper our pride. They soothe our hesitations and enfold our consciences in silky sounds that silence our doubts and numb our regrets. They can be as simple as an advertising campaign or as subtle as a chat group with friends. Amidst these forums of favour, foolish voices shout for our rights even as they crew and coon over our needs. They are within and without feeding our fantasies and reshaping our memories. In such words... We're always innocent, always aggrieved, always deserving and never demanding, always precious and never presuming. Or as Solomon says, the mouths of dullards chase folly. It is a joy to the senseless. Whether it's Instagram, Reddit or whatever feed algorithm, it guides and governs our deep dives down the rabbit holes where the echoes of foolish fill the chamber of our discontent and at the bottom we realise to our shock and horror what we have become. Proverbs 15 verse 12. A scoffer does not love it when one rebukes him. To the wise he will not go. How then, how then can we be wise listeners? Proverbs is full of warnings concerning the perils of listening to the foolish. But to avoid those, we must learn to be wise listeners. And the first and perhaps most shocking thing we need to learn is the wisdom of rebuke. Proverbs 5, 15.5 Adult will spurn his father's reproof, but he who heeds rebuke gains shrewdness. 
or verse 15 of chapter 12, the way of adult seems right in his eyes, but who listens to wise counsel? Or in chapter 19, verse 20, heed counsel and take proof that you get wisdom in the end. Wise listening is a lost virtue in the era of consumer confidence and focus groups where the customer is always right. To correct someone is to violate their rights and restrict their freedoms or breed hatred. Our social imaginary seems no gap between the reality of an individual's perception and their perception of reality. And so here is our dilemma. The one piece of wisdom we need to hear is the one to which we listen the least. Ironically, it doesn't matter how intelligent or educated you might be, refusing to hear correction affects everyone. If you are highly educated like me, naturally you already know everything and therefore are never wrong. Those who would correct you obviously are just not thought through enough. But Solomon says, harsh reproofs wait for him who forsakes the path, who hates rebuke, will die. And so naturally, the wise listen to God. From the perspective of Proverbs, there is one voice whose word we must attend, the Lord who made us. If for no other reason than no one has God's perspective on the world and everything in it. Or as Solomon writes, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, watching the evil and the good. Or in Proverbs 15.33, the Lord's fear is wisdom's foundation and humility, humility comes before honour. And again in 16.9, a man's heart may plan his way, but the Lord will make his step firm. From the perspective of Proverbs, it's as simple as reading the instructions before attempting to use a new piece of home technology, be it a coffee machine or a dishwasher. But there's the rub, isn't it? These things seem so straightforward and self-evident that we think, or at least I think, oh, it'll be all right, I'll work it out. Like the way that men never ask for directions or speak to sales assistants. <laughs> to hear a rebuke, we need to feel secure and significant. We need to hear loyalty and the offer of embrace rather than dismissal and isolation. And so Solomon writes in 16.6, iniquity is atoned for by loyalty and faithfulness and one turns from evil by fear of the Lord. Here then is the wisdom of God that stands out before all other words. For to make our way back towards good faith, we need a wisdom of one greater than Solomon. We need the wisdom of the cross. The wisdom of the cross is the rebuke that kills us even as it gives us life. In it we hear the, of what we deserve from God and what we need from God in the same word. The wisdom of God deconstructs our reason, it denies our denial, it rejects our rejection, it diffuses our conceit and addresses our evil for the sake of our good. Or as Paul writes to the Corinthians, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification and redemption. In the promise that Jesus died for our sins, our foolish disregard for the word of God, we hear the rebuke that we need, not the one that we deserve. In the broken and bloodied body of Jesus of Nazareth, we see the total sum of human folly that seeks to live in the world without God. Yet at the same time, we see a lamb offered by God as a sacrifice to acquit us of our punishment that we deserve. Here is the loyalty of God with us. Here is the connection of one who stands in our place. Hear this rebuke and live. Now in his grace, God cannot wait for us to comprehend the wise rebuke that he puts before us at the cross. So he sends his spirit into the abyss of our discontent to turn our hearts and lift our heads towards his cross. Or as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, what no eye has seen and what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, these are the things of God as revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows the person's thought except the spirit of God in them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit from God, so we may understand what God has freely given us. It's the power of God's spirit that raises us from the death of our discontent, that turns our hearts away from the foolish words to hear the one true word of God. I forgive you. Through the crucified Christ, we are given the gift of good faith that enables us to entrust ourselves to words again such that Solomon's words can ring true for us once more. One who listens to life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. That's Proverbs 15.31. Now there's more to say and in more practical terms and we can return to that next week and possibly in the weeks after when Archie preaches as well. But for now, let me finish by observing that in the last two weeks of Synod, there's been several ordinances debated relating to the desire for ministry teams to make performance evaluation and pastoral supervision a standard way of us relating to each other and serving our churches. Now, there have been good reasons for it, but I have to say that the most notable thing about these debates has been the almost complete polarisation between clergy and laypeople over the needs for and benefits of both. What's been notable to this observer is how often it was the clergy who spoke against both. Anyone who ignores discipline despises himself, but whoever listens to correction acquires good sense, says Solomon. Let me pray. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our paths and a guide for our feet. 
in the power of your spirit, open our eyes to hear that rebuke and live for Jesus' sake. Amen.